And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it <coughs> in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Well, if, uh, if you look in your bulletins, you'll find a picture of the so-called Alexamenos Graffito. This is the earliest surviving depiction that we have of Jesus. It dates back to around 200 AD, and it was scratched onto the wall of an ancient Roman building. Uh, you'll see there that it depicts a human-like figure hanging from a cross. But this figure has the head of a donkey. Next to the cross, just to the left there, is a young man with his hand raised. And beneath the cross, there is a caption there that reads, Alexamenos worships his God. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first known depiction of Jesus is graffiti-style mockery. The idea that Christians would worship a crucified savior has always been seen as foolish, laughable, shameful. 
And this shouldn't surprise us really. After all, the cross was an instrument of shame. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the very worst of criminals. It was a way to deter people from stepping out of line. Through the cross, the Romans wouldn't simply defeat their opponents, they would humiliate them. Victims would be tortured, ridiculed, stripped, and nailed to a cross. Their, their suffering was, was purposely drawn out so that they'd endure a long and painful death. This was all done in public. The cross was so shameful that Roman citizens were discouraged from even talking about it. For a Jew to be crucified was doubly shameful. In the Old Testament, God declared that anyone hanged on a tree is cursed. Therefore, in Jewish thinking, to be hanged on a wooden cross was to be judged by God. The shame of the cross is a major theme in the crucifixion account. I wonder if you noticed, as Mike read from Mark chapter 15 a moment ago, that Jesus wasn't just killed, was he? He was ridiculed. He was shamed, humiliated, mocked. First of all, notice that he was mocked by the soldiers. Look again at verse 17 there of Mark chapter 15. After Jesus is sentenced to be crucified, these soldiers decide to have a bit of fun. They dress him up in a purple cloak. They twist together a crown of thorns and, and place it on his head. They ironically salute him, hail king of the Jews. They then begin striking his head with a reed. They spit on him. They kneel down in homage to him. They essentially give Jesus a mock coronation. They completely and utterly humiliate him. They take pleasure in his shame. They delight in dehumanizing him. But the mocking doesn't end with the soldiers. Jesus is also mocked by Pontius Pilate. Look at verse 26. After Jesus is nailed to the cross, a sign is placed above his head. We're told in other gospel accounts that this sign was posted at the request of a man named Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor who sentenced Jesus to be crucified. This sign had an inscription on it, we're told, of the charge against Jesus. It read, the king of the Jews. It was meant to be ironic, of course. Pilate was sending a message. This is what happens to wannabe rivals of Caesar. But he was also making fun of Jesus. I mean, what kind of king finds himself hanging on a Roman cross? But the mocking doesn't end with Pilate. Jesus is also mocked by the crowds. Look at verse 29. As Jesus hangs there, they begin to deride and taunt him. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So much for your big claims, Jesus. Well, look at you now. They think this is all hilarious. But the mocking doesn't end with the crowds. Jesus is also mocked by the religious leaders. Look at verses 31 to 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But the mocking doesn't end with the religious PhDs of the day. Jesus is even mocked by the two 
robbers. These robbers, we're told in verse 27, are crucified alongside him, one on his right and one on his left. At the end of verse 32, they too decide to revile him. To revile means to, to heap shame on someone, to verbally abuse them, to taunt them. Isn't it amazing that even these men, as they hang crucified, find the energy to insult Jesus? The soldiers, Pilate, the crowd, the religious leaders, the two robbers, Jesus is mocked and humiliated by every angle, from every angle. Now, my assumption is that everyone in this room is appalled at their behavior. I mean, maybe you're thinking, goodness, what terrible people. It can be really difficult to, to see ourselves in the crucifixion account. After all, I think most of us could not imagine mocking someone in their death especially someone like Jesus. Here's someone who went around serving the poor, healing the sick, liberating the oppressed, befriending the outcasts. He taught people to love and forgive and serve one another. To kill a man like Jesus is shocking enough, but to mock him, it's almost unthinkable. Why wasn't it enough to simply destroy Jesus? Why did they have to shame him too? What was it about Jesus that aroused such scorn and ridicule? Maybe you notice this, but there's a common theme at the heart of their mockery. Throughout this passage, Jesus is jokingly referred to time and time again as a king. Did you notice that? He's even dressed up as a king. They facetiously bow down to him as a king. In other words, Jesus is mocked for his claim to be king. It's this claim that fuels their ridicule. It's this claim that ignites their scorn, but why? What is it about Jesus' claim to be king that provokes such mockery? In his confessions, Augustine tells a story about a time when as a young man, he broke into a pear orchard and stole some pears. And as he's looking back, he's trying to figure out, like, why did he do that? Because here's the thing, one, he wasn't hungry, and two, he didn't even like pears. And he comes to the conclusion that the reason he stole the pears was because someone told him that he couldn't. And as he reflects, Augustine realized something about his heart, and, and therefore all of our hearts. He realized that there's something in the human heart that says, nobody tells me what to do. We like to be our own boss, don't we? We, like, we don't like to submit to others. We, we don't like to be told how to live. We like to occupy the throne of our lives. But then Jesus comes along with this enormous and exclusive claim. He claims to be the Christ, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we hate this claim. Most of us are fine with Jesus being a good moral example. We're happy for him to be a wise teacher. We're okay with him being one of many paths. And many of us tell ourselves that that's who Jesus was. However, when Jesus claims to be king, it forces us to make a decision. Because now we can't simply like Jesus. It's all or nothing. Either Jesus really is the king, and therefore we need to center our lives around him. Or he's not the king, and therefore he's a joke. He's a fool. 
You know, we might balk at the absurd behavior of those who mock Jesus, but at least they took his claim seriously. You know, maybe you're here tonight and your life is not centered around Jesus. You don't, you don't recognize him as your king. Maybe you even have a level of respect for Jesus. You think he was a good person, and you'd certainly, you've certainly never found his death to be a laughing matter. And so for you, it's really difficult to see yourself in this crucifixion account. But if that describes you tonight, can I just suggest that you actually haven't taken Jesus' claims seriously because he claims to be the king. He claims to be God himself in the flesh, and that means he claims to rule over the universe. He claims to have authority over everything, including you. He claims to decide what is true and false, right and wrong. He demands your total and complete allegiance. He even claims to have final say over your thoughts and your words and your actions and your feelings and your stuff. I mean, these are enormous and exclusive claims. It really is all or nothing with Jesus. And I think when you realize that, you see that it forces you to make a decision. You can either mock him as a fool or worship him as your king, but you just can't be neutral with Jesus. You can't sit on the fence because Jesus just doesn't give us that option. His claims are too enormous and too exclusive. Are you beginning to see why Jesus was so despised? Because let's be honest, we love our autonomy, don't we? We like to be self-governing. We like to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, true or false. We like to have authority over our own lives. We, we don't appreciate it when someone else tells us how we should think and feel. What, should we, what we should do with our bodies or our time or our money. We like to be the captain of our soul. And so when our autonomy is threatened, it's not enough to simply destroy that threat. We must humiliate it, mock it, ridicule it. We must expose any threat to our autonomy as laughable and shameful. But there's another reason Jesus' claim incites mockery. He doesn't actually look like a king, does he? He looks weak, powerless. Where, where is his army? Where is his resistance? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he is silent. He offers no defense. What kind of king allows himself to be betrayed, captured, and condemned? What kind of king wears a crown of thorns? What kind of king is anointed with human spittle? What kind of king is exalted on a cross? We, we don't have a category for a king like this, a king who comes in weakness. Throughout this passage, Jesus seems so weak and powerless, doesn't he? He can't even carry his own cross. He's stripped naked, his clothes are divided among the soldiers. In verse 30 there, the crowd taunts him, save yourself and come down from the cross. But he doesn't. Or look again at verses 31 to 32. The religious leaders challenge Jesus to show some strength, to, to exhibit some power, to pull out those nails and get down from the cross. Only then, they claim, will they believe. To them, a crucified savior 
is more of a jester than a, than a king. But we need to see the deeper irony to their words. Look at verse 31 again. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Here's the irony. They're absolutely right. The only way Jesus could save others was precisely by not saving himself. If Jesus saved himself, if, if he got down from the cross, then he couldn't save others. The cross was necessary. Jesus had to die. He had to endure shame and humiliation. And that's because of what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from our sin. And again, we naturally mock this idea, don't we? That someone needs to die for our sin. Because the society we live in tells us that we're actually good people. Sure, we do bad things from time to time, but, but at our core, we are inherently good. Yet the Bible tells us something different, something that people tend to mock. It tells us that we do bad things because at our core, there's actually something rotten, wicked, evil. In fact, we're so bad, we need rescuing. We need a king to come and save us from our sin. And the only way he can do that is through a shameful cross. And to many people, that very idea is offensive. And not just offensive, ridiculous, laughable. You know, we're perfectly happy with a Jesus who just came to give us some tips for self-improvement. Or a Jesus who offers us an inspiring example of courage and self-sacrifice. Or even a Jesus who spreads a message of sentimental love and peace. But a Jesus who dies a shameful death on a cross in order to save us from our sin. This is not the Jesus we naturally want. Yet, it is the Jesus we actually need. A couple of months ago, I, I informed my daughter that she had to tidy up her room before she watched TV. I've got her permission to share this story. Uh, I informed her that she had to tidy up her room, tidy up the mess before she watched any TV, to which she responded, but dad, I'm just a child. And so I said, you're actually six years old and you're able to clean up your own mess. But she, of course, had a rebuttal up her sleeve she said, actually, there are some times when a grown-up should clean up a child's mess. Like when it's too dangerous for children to clean up their own mess. To which I interjected, well, the mess in your room is not dangerous to clean up. But she continued in her closing argument. She said, or if the mess is so bad that a child could not possibly clean it up. My daughter's obviously grown up in a church full of lawyers, so thank you for that, everyone. <laughs> now, we mustn't think that our sin is like a, messy child's room, like a child's messy room. Because when it comes to our sin, we're actually not able to clean our mess up. In fact, it is actually dangerous for us to try and clean up the mess of our sin. You see, the Bible says that each one of us is guilty of high treason. We've rebelled against the king of the universe. We've sought to usurp his throne. We've transgressed his commands. We've, we've opposed his authority. And this makes us guilty before God, but that's not all. Because sin 
dehumanizes us. It makes us less than we were meant to be. We've become morally impure and corrupt and defiled. And before the eyes of a holy God, we're utterly exposed. We see this right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they immediately experience shame. They hide and cover, their, cover themselves. Sin leads to guilt, but sin also leads to shame. And we all know that feeling of shame, don't we? That sense that there's something wrong with us. We know we're not the people we're meant to be. And so we fear being seen by others. We fear the humiliation, and so we hide. Or we try and cover up our shame with proverbial fig leaves. We try to mask our shame with, with good deeds or personal achievements or drugs and alcohol or, or entertainment and distraction, whatever it is. But the shame doesn't actually go away, does it? As much as we try and clean up the mess of our sin, the guilt and the shame just remain. And one day the Bible says God will hold us to account. We must all appear before his judgment seat. And there'll be nowhere to hide on that day. And we'll face the judgment of eternal condemnation and shame for our sin. And friends, this is why we celebrate Good Friday. Because Jesus came to save us from our sin. He came to deal with both our guilt and our shame. That's why he willingly went to the cross. Because on the cross, he took the punishment that our sins deserved. He was condemned in our place. He, the innocent one, was treated as though he were guilty. But that's not all. Because as we've been seeing, Jesus also bore our shame. He took on our disgrace. He endured our reproach. He suffered the humiliation and the mockery that our shame deserved. Why did he do that? Well, because he loves us. Not because we're lovable. We're guilty and vile and helpless. Yet for the joy of seeing his people forgiven and reconciled to God, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He suffered ridicule, humiliation, and scorn. And that, friends, is the kind of king we have in Jesus. Let me ask you, don't you want to follow that kind of king? Don't you want to entrust your life to a king like Jesus? Look, here's the good news of the cross. If you trust in Jesus, if you acknowledge him as your king, if you receive him as your savior, he will take your guilt and he'll exchange it for his righteousness. He'll take your shame and he'll exchange it for his honor. His blood will cleanse you from your sin. You'll stand before God blameless, pure, and holy. And this is all a free gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to contribute. All you have to do is receive this good news by faith. So if you've never done that, then let me encourage you. Let me urge you tonight to receive Christ, to trust in Jesus as your king and as your savior. You see, there's, there's a delicious irony to this passage because it turns out the man mocked as king is actually the king. And the cross really is his coronation. Because it's through the weakness of the cross that Jesus displays his power. The king who can't save others, sorry, the king who can't save himself really does save others. Jesus proved this 
by conquering sin and death. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory. And one day, our glorious king is returning. Every eye will see him. He'll be dressed in dreadful majesty. And there'll be no mocking, no insults, no scorn. Every knee will bow before the judge of all eternity. And for those who recognize Jesus as their king, well, the Bible has good news. Romans 10, 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. On the cross, Jesus bore our shame so that we can share in his honor and his glory. What a savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you tonight and we praise you and we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you, for the joy that was set before you, endured the cross, despising the shame, and now you are seated at the right hand of God in glory as the king. Lord, we recognize you as the king today, as the one who has saved us from our greatest enemies, of Satan and sin and death. And we put our trust in you afresh today. And we give you all the honor and glory. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.